I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Well, welcome to today's episode of The Discomfort Practice. We are speaking to Dr. Mick Jackson in Scotland. I know you'll enjoy his accent. I am. He's the founder of Wild Hearts, which is a multi-million pound group created with the sole aim of using their profits to help humanity. They're my kind of people. Uh, Wild Hearts Group is championed by leading corporates and global business leaders and so far has transformed over 1 million lives globally by doing things like funding micro-entrepreneurship micro across 40 countries and providing free purpose-driven training to over 50,000 young people through their micro Tyco program. We'll hear more about that, I'm sure, at some point. Um, we're going to call you Dr. Mick, right? <laughs> Mick's fine. Dr. Mick, okay. Mick was inspired to start Wild Hearts after he turned back from his attempt to climb Broad Peak and K2 to save the life of his dying Sherpa, carrying him for four days to safety. So Mick is a badass, basically. His story also includes fascinating anecdotes. We're going to talk about escaping riots in Syria, facing down machete-wielding gangs in Guatemala, and confronting the Taliban in Kashmir. So he's got an interesting story. When I first spoke to him, you compared discomfort to the equivalent of building the strength of one's emotional immune system. And to get your quote right, you said, I don't like comfort. It makes me uncomfortable. So I knew you would be a very interesting guest for this podcast. So let's kick this off because obviously we're talking about the role of discomfort in your own life, your path, who you are in the world and how that has shaped your choices to commit yourself to helping other people and helping humanity be better. So how can discomfort uh, maybe be slightly addictive in your case? No, I wouldn't say it's addictive, <laughs> but <laughs> um, it's really nice to chat to you, Betsy. Um, I think I was fascinated by the title of your podcast, this idea of discomfort. I think when I associate, when we talk about people who are extremely comfortable, um, to me, that's only one step away from decadence. Do you know what I mean? Like the decline of all the great empires came from they just got a bit too comfortable. They kind of, yeah, they're soft and flabby. They'd lost their mojo. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, especially as you get older, I don't seek out things. Like when I was younger, I used to skydiving and all that sort of stuff. But yeah. as you get older, it's not this, oh, I want to feel uncomfortable. It's some kind of mental condition. Um, but rather, the, the true excellence or true achievement or indeed spiritual self-discovery comes from another side of discomfort um, as long as it's constructive discomfort mm. um, and I know we're going to go into so many different aspects of this but I think that um, there are so many benefits of constructive times in your life have been uncomfortable um, for example humility how many times do I mean one of my favorite stories and it's inspired me so much is a Christmas carol and I talk about the Scrooge moment when he gets it and the only way he got it was when he was made to experience pain mm. and then he became empathetic so one of the most dangerous traits in fact is that not one of the characteristics of a psychopath that they like empathy and so many people like empathy because they literally have no idea what it feels like to be about to lose your job or to go through, through redundancy or whatever and that's when you get that gift of ah okay I get what that person feels like and then we stop mm -hmm. characterizing each other as well they're just fat cats and they're just chavs or as we call meds or we go well they're not actually they're just kids that you probably never had a conversation with and that fat cat that you just read about in a paper probably is an extremely nice person with significant challenges in her life that if you got to know her you'd find uh, there's, mm. a, there's a, a lot more going on in her life and I mean that once we experience these things um, that's when we go okay I'm going to stop judging. So, so about actually connecting with other people rather than being polarized because discomfort means you get that they're exactly like you in most ways. Look at the, um, you know, I'm not going to go into politics in any meaningful sense here in terms of make political points, but I think one thing I've noticed, and America's almost 
Britain's kind of morphing into America. We're almost like, you know, mm. you get British people talking about American politics more than they talk about their own. Do you know I what know. I mean? I'm both. I'm American and British, and it's been strange exactly. to watch and be like, oh boy, I thought I moved away from something, but nope, not so much. But when we look at um, the dangerous aspects of characterizing people who disagree with you as X, they're Remainers, they're Ram- no, Ramoners, or they're whatever the insult is for somebody's left, and that really patronizing sense of saying, well, they're obviously racist if they want to leave you. Or they're this. You go, have you had a conversation with anybody about it? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Do you get what they, why they did that? There's probably a lot more going on. Um, so I know that may seem a bit distant from the idea of personal discomfort in your life, but empathy and the ability to see the world through another person's eyes, I think, is one of the key attributes that make us human. Mm. And if we lose it, then that's when we start dehumanizing each other, and then that's the path to... That's the path to ruin. Well, do you think there's also an element of we do kind of find comfort in making things very black and white and polarized, that that is kind of a comfort zone because grappling with the idea that someone who seems very different is actually very like you is is uncomfortable. It's not easy to get your head around. It's not easy to step into unless you've practiced it. So maybe there's a discomfort practice element there. I think, yeah, you're touching upon the, the concept of righteous rage, mm. um, which is an evolutionary trait. When you get really angry or you go into a state of rage, we're evolutionally designed to feel extremely certain <laughs> yeah. what we think. Because yeah. in, in back in the day, it meant that you, if you weren't fully focused on what you were about to do, you were probably going to get eaten or killed <laughs> by the local tribe, right? So you're like, I'm going to give this everything I've got and I am certain and I'm focused on one thing. And there's that righteous indignation um, which people can get quite high on, actually. But, um, you know, that's when you get your Salem witch trials. That's when you get the you know, whole group pointing at the outsider. Um, and to then start to try, it's, it's a lot more comfortable to that. That's why I've got a lot of friends in the military. That's why they never call the people they're fighting by their nationality or anything else. They call them the enemy. Yeah. Because the minute you have these 16-year-old soldiers go, which means the guys like us, <laughs> they're less likely to want to shoot them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So got You'd be programmed. The enemy. That's all they are. This yeah. homogenous group. That's yeah. all you need to know. You can be comfortable with dehumanizing because you have a job to do as a soldier. Yeah. Okay. So I think that probably leads us quite neatly into some of your stories. Because based on your biography, we know you've had many, many uncomfortable situations that have <laughs> shaped you. But what, you know, just unpack one of those moments that's really shaped your life and who you are and why you do what you do in the world. It's that's anecdote time. The ones yeah. that you're allowed to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I've got three, actually. Um, okay. And I've been thinking a lot about this. I um, will come on to the micro-tackle method and the way we t- teach uh, purpose-driven entrepreneurship later, I hope. But um, one of the things we talk about, and it's quite revelationary for people, is the idea that the things that you're really good at, you probably take for granted because you think everyone's like that or it's just something, but you don't realize that it's something you're good at and other people would really, really struggle with, right? Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is I I do a lot of speeches. I Sometimes the thousands and thousands of people, whether it's the UN or some house department or big corporate corporate mm-hmm. events or whatever, and I'm not trying to sound like a smarty pants, but I never get nervous. I am never nervous. Mm-hmm. The reason why I'm never nervous is because I slayed that demon when I was 14 years old in the church hall when I did my first rock kick. Right, so I put on my first concert, my band. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I'd put so much into it. I prepared it all. I'd even use my paper run money. I used to sell papers. Oh, wow. And I'd, I'd invested in all these pyrotechnics so the bombs could go off. And it was great. It was really exciting. And it was, wow. in, the, it was in the local church hall, right? <laughs> and I pyrotechnics is brilliant. <laughs> and I thought a few, a few kids will turn up. And then... Yeah, I used to go to church and I was, I was at mass, right? And the priest went, oh, and there's a concert on tonight for all you young people. And I was sitting in mass going, oh, no, he's told her. So, like, all the kids headed down. So the place was rammed, <laughs> rammed, hundreds and hundreds of kids. And I'll never forget, I had on black and white zebra screen trousers. <laughs> oh, Mick, what year was this? Don't tell us. No, yeah. no. Oh, this is the 80s. I yeah. am a child of the 80s. So, and awesome. the thing is, 
in terms of building character and being uncomfortable, I was trying to look like a Californian rock star in the west of Scotland. That builds character. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I'm very familiar with the west of Scotland. Wow. Yeah. So it was wow. California and then there's, yeah. So yeah. I remember going and it was all good to go and I put all this effort in. And I remember the sound guy going, you better go and put your stage clothes on. And that was my Zebra's kind of trousers. And at that point, I went into the toilet and very, very nearly threw up all over my trousers. <laughs> and if someone had said to me, listen, it's okay, sneak out the back door, go home, you'll be okay, I there's a damn good chance that I'd done it. But I didn't. I had to yeah. go on stage. And thank God, God bless those wee kids, because when I finished the first song, the place erupted. Uh, and at that point, I was like, ooh, this is good. <laughs> I, I like this feeling. <laughs> this is nice. And those wee kids helped me realise, like, mate, go through it, right? And then, of course, the next gig, you're nervous. And then, and then your first big speech, you're nervous. You go through it after a while. You go, I'm not being arrogant. I'm not being indifferent. It's fine. I've done this so many times. I'm not scared anymore. It's a practice. Had, exactly yeah. so. Yeah. Had I never got over that fear, God knows how many doors would have been firmly bolted shut. The mm. Wild House wouldn't exist. Mm. It, wouldn't, it wouldn't exist. I love that you so, can trace it back to a rock gig at the age of 14 and was it? East Kilbride. Yeah, and I do have a confession. Um, <laughs> I am still wearing my lucky spandex zebra skin trousers. And, and, um, <laughs> and whenever I do speeches, I still wear them under my trousers and I give them a little pinch just to, yeah, no, I don't. And that, that's, no, that's but that would be awesome. Or like a little <laughs> strip of cloth in your pocket that you had to just remind you of this. A plectrum, a plectrum. That's what it's yeah. yeah, that um, perfect. So that's really important. I mean, I said that mm. to kids a lot, whether they're playing rugby or they, they're in drama at school, go see these things you're doing, there's the seeds of your future. That thing you're drawn to, go through the pain, um, go through the, the fear because the gift's another side of it. Mm. Don't be scared of discomfort. Yeah. So that's one. Um, I think Good the other one. one is setting up businesses. I always want to have my own business. Um, but really, and it is the crucible of, okay, I'm three months from bankruptcy and you're living with that every night and you're going to beg, how am I going to make ends meet here? How am I going to do this? Looking at your young team and they're saying, oh, we love this guy, it's so great and we love working here. And you're going, oh, I think I might be having to make you redundant. All that yeah. stuff, um, if you get through it, toughens you up and toughens you up and toughens you up. And I think... I, there's five deals we have on the table just now that would have melted my brain a year ago. Hmm. And wow, just like, a year ago, even. Do you remember, yeah, li literally, oh. that rapid evolution of your sense yeah. of self and your self sense of what's possible. And yeah. I'm not trying to sound like, again, like some kind of smart plan. You look at people that are doing billion-dollar deals and you, they go, well, yeah, but I built up to it. I built mm. up to it. And so, mm. but the only going through... This is the problem I think we have with this excessively airbrushed world People only see the finished product. Yeah. You go and the finished Instagram. product isn't even real now, right? Even yeah. the reality isn't real. So, yeah. I mean, even in the days of your sporting stars and you see this glossy bit of it, do you know the effort she put into that? She didn't yeah. just swagger out on the court, right? And I think if we said that's very admirable, can we talk about the process she went through? Mm. Do you see with that soccer star, what he has done to do yeah. that? You go, yeah. okay, am I willing to pay that price? No. I admire him. I don't want to do it. Yeah. Rather than that sense of resentment, I could do that. You go, mm. yeah, or a sort of sense of entitlement to the glossy side of it without yeah. putting in your 10,000 hours. And yeah, yeah. That's well, I'm, yeah. Sorry, Biz. Oh, I will be interviewing plenty of athletes on this because they know discomfort practice, like very few mere mortals do, because they know you have to do your time. You have to push through the discomfort to be excellent. So, yeah, exactly. But it's interesting if you look at, um, I think understanding sacrifice and understanding effort does temper a sense of um, maybe tone down the set level of resentment because you can look at somebody and say, right, would you like the product that they have in the life of X, the outcome they've got? Yes. Would you be willing to dedicate X, Y, and Z to get that? No. So you don't really want it anymore. It's like, nah, not really. Do you know what I mean? But if you think yeah. you were just born that way, then it is more akin to a, a, form of, a form of envy, which isn't healthy. So that was my second experience, is earning my stripes and going through the whole um, entrepreneurial process. Mm -hmm. um, but the really interesting one, I think, is 
I think we're so immersed in who we are and our culture that we're like fish and water, that we don't know we're in water, right? So mm-hmm. I was raised in the west coast of Scotland. The reason I say the west coast, because as you'll know, but it's got a very distinctive kind of Celtic element to it. Um, my Both my grandfathers were Irish. Um, mm-hmm. And so I've got that whole Irish-Scottish thing going on. And I was immersed in that. Um, and I think that when we consume media, or even like, you know, I'm talking about the, the bands that I emulated, they were all from the States, because I had this whole thing about these amazing metal guitarists and stuff, and the best ones came out of the States after people like Led Zeppelin and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, is you, I think it puts a veneer of what you think your values are, and it's only when you experience significant discomfort or challenge that it goes right to the real identity of who you are. Like all the kind of superficial, mm. I like this band, and I like that becomes what it is it's just a veneer it's only the surface it's not the real core of who you are and when I went to um try and climb those mountains in Kashmir which I laugh at now I mean guys are mental I said men climb mountains because they can't give birth do you know what I mean it's like I've thought of that before (laughs) it's like what in God's name are you doing like I think deep down I was trying to prove I was husband material (laughs) your guys go hey look at how stupidly reckless I am well now you've got kids so clearly you did a good job so oh my god yeah and the problem is they're saying dad I want to have a motorbike like you no dad I want to climb out no what kind of men are they going to become like no don't do any of the things i did go well they have to go through that nonsense too yeah um so basically this is an attempt to try and climb a mountain called broad peak they're both and then it's literally next door neighbors k2 and they're both mm. over eight thousand meters both very different ones much more dangerous than other this is not some big hero story because i didn't climb either either of them um mm. because while i was there i was confronted with the fact that my guide who subsequently became a veteran bodyguard a Kashmiri tribesman called Cher who I became really good friends with um he collapsed during the expedition and it turns out the Bulgarian minister of health was in, there's all these international expeditions here and a Bulgarian team their doctor was the Bulgarian minister of health wow and uh, he said his lungs have collapsed and if he's not down at this from this altitude within 24 hours he's going to die Wow, okay. Yeah, okay, now the point being, and this was the catalyst, a couple of weeks earlier, there was a French, a French expedition, I was on a French expedition, there was a French expedition ahead of us, and there was a young 18-year-old boy died in his tent, they found him dead in a moment. Mm. And the Pakistani military sent a helicopter to evacuate his corpse. I will never forget this helicopter going right over the glacier passes with this body bag strapped to the side of it. Um because you have to walk for a week over the ice. You go to the middle of nowhere and then you walk from the middle of nowhere over ice for a week to get to K2 base camp, Broad Peak base camp. And on the other side of them, K2 is China and India and Pakistan are fighting over that region. I mean, you literally can't get any more remote. Yeah. So they sent a helicopter for a dead Westerner. So I said, Mm -hmm. well, we have to scramble one of those helicopters. And I was told that no one would be coming because he was too poor. Wow. So you got smacked in the face with the reality of privilege, huh? So here's the point. I looked at, and this is the thing, right? I went berserk. <laughs> mm. And uh, Cher didn't really speak English, so he saw my reaction and put two and two, two together. And he just folded it on himself like a little flip, just kind of folded over and kind of bowed his head. That level of resignation. And uh, this was the point, but so this was the defining moment. I looked to him and said, did I left my grandfathers for dead? Because yeah. my grand, one of my grandfathers was a minor when he was 12 years old. He was a child labourer at the height of the British Empire. Yeah, wow. Right? In Glasgow. Yeah. So I looked to him and, well, did I left them? And I just, something just clicked. So cut a long story short, picked him up, got some of the other guys, some of the other guys, some of the other tries, and I said, right, we're heading out of here. And the thing that really disgusted me was the whole tempering of ambition. Some, Honestly, there were literally some climbers that went, but you've paid tens of thousands of pounds to be on this expedition. Let <laughs> him die. Yeah. Yeah. Holy right. crap. Yeah, honestly. Ugh. And there's some people yeah. that have tried to make wee comments, you go, yeah, didn't see any of you lot rushing to help. Yeah, wow. Do you know what I mean? But literally, it was like, wow, that's amazing what you did. I was like, I, am I taking crazy pills here? Mm. Who gives up? Maybe give you one of your oh, oh. there. <laughs> I'll be standing at the top of this mountain with your stupid wee flag. Yeah. So that was the, wow, what a sacrifice. I was like, no, it's not. <laughs> and basically, but the good news is, 
four days out, and um, sometimes we had to carry him. Um, but I won't try center road. Sometimes we bloody dragged the poor guy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Wow. Do you know what I think? Do you know what I think? The only words he said to me the whole time was, "I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, sir." Ooh, that is uncomfortable on <laughs> so many yeah. fronts. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Here's, so... here's, the, here's the point. During the day at that altitude, the sun would take your skin off. And then the minute the sun goes behind the mountain, it's instantly sub-zero. And the whole, these rivers that flow through the glaciers, which are like little mini torrents, freeze that night and then flow the next day and freeze that night. That's the extremity. So I'm shivering at minus 40, right, all wrapped up in our wee blankets. And all I could think about was the only reason we were going through this is because a man is judged by what he owns in the world. And Oof. that's that was the founding moment of Wild Hearts because I said, I don't know what state I'm going to be in when I get by, but if I get back and I'm fit enough to do something, because I was in a really bad state, I was coughing up blood, I was, mm. you know, I was I was in really, really bad states. I didn't actually realize how bad I, how ill I was. Um, I thought if I get out, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to take all my business networks and my knowledge and everything I've learned so far and I'm going to refocus it on helping people don't know how I'm going to help people don't know what kind of help I'm going to give them don't know how I'm going to but I'm, I don't know how I'm going to do it and that's Wild Hearts is the response to that wow I love that that is the 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 legacy of that very intense experience and I think what I also like about your story is that you you are a high achiever, clearly, but also you're just a normal human being. You know, you're sort of, you're not Gandhi. You... Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're forgetting I'm from the West Coast of Scotland. It's the true. minute you start giving me compliments, that's when Oh, that's I right. You can't handle it. There's this thing in Scotland called tall poppy syndrome, which is like, don't you dare stick your head over, you know, don't no, you dare do, think you're call, better than anyone or you're really good at anything. Ke- it's the Celtic cringe. They call it the Kelsey. Do you know that I've got I've got a lot of friends in HR (laughs) because of what we do in Microtyco, and they it was one of the big banks. Do they give these kind of cultural? Oh, yeah. Insight handbooks, right? (laughs) And apparently, I'm only hearing this as an anecdote. There's apparently there's one on the Scots, and it says because there's a lot of very successful Scots bankers, right? They say if you're interviewing a Scot, don't expect them to tell you how brilliant they are. Mm-hmm. Or how, because it's profoundly uncomfortable for them. Yeah, you're going to have to tease it out. You're going to have to tease it out. So, um, but that's a good thing, isn't it? Isn't it really wearing when you get the person that tells you how amazing they are, and then it, it, they get tested, and they were, they were always full of crap in the first place? Do you know what I mean? I have a relevant anecdote that, well, it's sort of a history because I, I made my career in Scotland um, right. being a campaigner um, and running things with the Scottish government. But I figured out being American was quite useful because there is this Celtic cringe and I would stand on stage and be like, did you know that Scotland is leading the world in this and this and this and this? And you're awesome because I could get away with saying that with an American accent. And people would kind of be like, oh, shucks, embarrassed. But then they'd kind of like have a twinkle in their eye because there is this cultural pride about being Scottish and being, you know, sort of um, a more socialist society and taking care of people in poverty. So I kind of worked the Celtic cringe to my advantage. But it is discomfort just being like, this makes you uncomfortable, but I'm going to use that to bring people along with me it was but, actually but it's interesting from an inside from an outsider's perspective looking in and also mm. it's the cliche oh, americans are like this you know all 350 million of them yeah. <laughs> but there is that thing that there's a lot more comfort about talking about success whatever there's one thing that there's an okay so they talk about the tall poppy thing isn't good right if it holds people back but there's one mm. aspect of that in scott's culture and i don't like to sound jingoistic and you say, well, this country's like this and this country's like that, right? But there are some traits. There's one thing that I really, really love about a lot of the friends that I have that, you know, some of them, one's a world authority in chemistry and one's a lead dental surgeon, she's my next door neighbor. Um, and you would never know, right? But they are world class and they're yeah. just, but they, but they don't, I think what it is is they don't think that makes them better than you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's good. I like that. There's a kind of... You do. Yeah, I'm really good at this, but okay, who cares? Do you know what I mean? We're all in it together. Yeah, but as long and, as it doesn't... Then, it, 
No, so right. honestly, as long as it doesn't make people hold themselves back, yeah. that's that's when you're, you're then stultifying talent, which is so against my values. Yeah. Oh man, Scots are like Coca-Cola. You're everywhere and entrepreneurial, very entrepreneurial. But I I do love that about the the humility that is very cultural, but that also plays back into comfort zone because I used that to push people to the edge of their comfort zones in a really productive way because then they were they were uncomfortable, but it's then that you can really start to work with people and talk about things that are kind of off limits or uncomfortable because niceness is often not very productive. So if you're all uncomfortable together, there's kind of a unity in that as well when you're doing things like running a national fair trade campaign, for example. So yeah, it's an interesting point. I didn't expect that to come up, but it's an interesting point about cultural I comfort. I didn't zones. expect it to come up either. Well, here's the mm. point. Let's go into travel then, right? We're talking about, mm. um, so I absolutely love traveling to like really places that are harder to get to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very, let, let me, maybe I should phrase that, phrase that a different way. But here's the point to your point you just made. It's when you see another culture, you get a much clearer impression of your own. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you talk about the Scots going all around, we go all around the world. You say, yeah, you notice that a lot of them left. <laughs> now, I think that's yep. the way, I think that's the way. <laughs> it, it explains New Zealand and Canada. Is all I'm going to say. Isn't it weird for people go literally to the other side of the world and call the place the exact same? Yeah, <laughs> New Caledonia. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like no, you go to like um, you know New Zealand and it's like you know Leith Walk. You go really? Like, yeah. but a different version of it Um, that's true my one of my best friend from school big chris um we were pals ever since we were five and he immigrated to new zealand and he called it scotland on steroids (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i mean it's absolutely incredible um and it's bizarre (laughs) when i went down there because it looks so similar to scotland on a more extreme way and you kind of think you're on a Mm -hmm. Got 36 hours to get here and you're like what is this so anyway scotland um, on steroids i like that so the traveling thing, I mean, it's it's dangerous if you if you become so comfortable with your own culture, you think it's the only way the world thinks. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. also very easy to get hoodwinked by bad faith actors and they say, you do know all X like this, or they're all like, well, I've actually met a lot of them and they're not. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And so it's it's the danger of reducing people to stereotypes or being so comfortable with the, the the truths of your own culture that's when you when you go outside them they get rattled a bit right yeah. so I'll give an example my mum who was it was incredible um and she wasn't very religious but she was raised in an Irish Catholic environment right mm-hmm. and so she would go in home and she but it was a part of her identity but it wasn't an overbearing part of her identity but where she would go and hold it maybe She'd go and visit friends in Paris or she'd go to Spain. They're all crystal-centric cultures. Mm. I took her to Istanbul. And it really amazed her to see such vast, exquisite infrastructure that was from a completely different... Well, it's not. They're all Judeo-Christianic religions. But to to come to look at these mosques, they are not Christians. And it was like, it was just such a kind of disconnect for her which was a real it, 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 it's those times for your perceptions crack if you will that the wisdom can break in that knowledge comes do you know what I mean um yeah so I I think that's why I love traveling so much and I particularly love sub-Saharan Africa and uh, Central and South America etc um mm. but you mentioned <laughs> Oh, I want to hear about the machete. Yes. <laughs> Please well, tell is, us about machetes. No, this is a joke. Because... <laughs> I know exactly what you're going to talk about. Yes. No, but apart, but apart, you know, we've, we've been raised in Glasgow, right? We were going through Guatemala and um, we were told it was dangerous at the time, um, particularly at this time, and there was a lot of roadblocks, but we're still traveling. I was traveling in this bus, and there was people from all these different cultures there, right? And um, all sorts of backpackers. And we were traveling through this uh, area at night, and then all of a sudden, there's the roadblock, right? And there was easily 150 guys, easily, right? Yeah. Um, and they're all topless with machetes and uh, tequila, drinking it. So. <laughs> It's a good combo. It's a good combo. It's just a good night out in Glasgow, isn't it? Well, that's what I was going to say. I thought, oh, these are my people. I'm kind of used to this. Now, you know, 
basically some of the, the young girls and one woman in particular on the bus like they had a, almost like a breakdown in terms of the sheer terror of what this represented to them but I'm not being glib about it but I knew how to deal with drunk guys with weapons <laughs> <laughs> yeah because isn't it um, doctors from all over the world come to train in Glasgow because you learn how to deal with stab wounds? Wait a minute. Wait, I no, know I've heard this. I've heard I, this. I, yeah, I'm thinking of my friends. We do we get a lot of them. World Hearts Foundation has a base in Johannesburg with amazing trustees, South mm. Africans. And they told me that if you want to study gunshot wounds, they go to the hospitals in Johannesburg. Mm. And there was a Swedish guy. Was he Swedish or Swiss? And at the end of the day, he was just, I mean, this is horrible. I'm not being lighthearted. This guy was sitting mm-hmm. covered in blood and he'd seen more gunshot wounds in a night than he'd seen in a year in Geneva or something or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, so I didn't know Glasgow was the stabbing place. <laughs> Stab capital of Europe, apparently. But yeah. Oh my gosh, if anybody's listening to this, Scotland is a wonderful place and Glasgow is not that scary. Just don't no. go wandering around by the by yourself in the middle of the night. It's is good advice anywhere, really. So <laughs> no, Glasgow is extremely friendly. Like yeah. I have even when in my band days when I had long bloody blonde hair and a studded leather jacket, no one looked at me twice. Like yeah. it's an extremely friendly place. Um, but it did used to be the murder capital of Europe. Um, but that's the usual tragic scenario of the poor little guys in the housing estates killing each yeah. other. Do you know what I mean? And then, you know, we see that all around the world. These poor boys usually inflicting horrendous violence on one another. Um, incidentally, the, the Glaswegian police, I know the woman at ran the, the anti-violence the, um, initiative, if you will. Yeah. And the results they produced were utterly incredible. All right, here's a subject of discomfort then. One of the things they do is they'd, they'd make the perpetrator meet the victim and his parents. Oh, now there's wow. discomfort. Yeah. Now, do you remember we talked about the Scrooge moment? If yeah. you're pumped up, maybe you're drunk, maybe you're on drugs, but you've got that testosterone rage and you're in a fight and somebody gets stabbed, then you calm down and you're not on high anymore. You go, okay, now you're going to see the consequences of what you did. Mm. And there's his mum and there's the boy with a mark all down his face. And these boys are like, please, please, please get me out of this room. And that made them reflect on consequences. And that's discomfort. Yeah. Because you suddenly have to see a human and the the adrenaline is gone. The rage is gone, exactly. Yeah. yeah. This, this probably leads us quite nicely into talking about Microtyco no, and wait, wait, the program. Wait, I need to All tell right. you, just one thing, like, so basically, just to tell you, <laughs> no, because I got one of my little travel highlights and this is so ridiculous. I'm You're so glowing. I can't wait right to hear what this I is. Was, I was so happy, right? So, there's, so I got off the bus and I walked up these guys and then you, you just have to be there if they're going to be aggressive, you have to be hyper-friendly. You know how it works. It's like, how you doing? And the next thing I knew, the only people who come off the bus, and I'm standing, speaking rudimentary Spanish with a bottle of tequila swinging the tequila <laughs> and talking to them. And I was like, these are my friends. Because the thing was, they weren't trying to stop backpackers. They, it was a government protest as an echo of the Civil War because these guys had been mm. told to stand down and the government hadn't kept their part of the bargain, so they hadn't paid them or given them pharma. So they were actually, it was a government protest, right? But one thing, the little benefit at the end of it was their leader. And it, it was perfect because the guy had to stop. He had a cigar. He was the classic <laughs> thing, right? And then all these backpackers are walking through, letting them through. And I was like, come on, it's fine. And this, the leader looked at me and I was like, honestly, it's so pathetic. But he just made my year. He looked at me with his tequila and his, his machete and just went, hey, gringo. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> I was like, yes. Yes. It was just a little... Little thing. <laughs> Mick Jackson making friends with tequila and machetes the world over. Oh, uh, yeah. Is, yeah. I, technically, I'm not a gringo, though. You have to be American to be a gringo, don't you? I think uh, that's actually a I, I can't really answer that because obviously I'm a gringa. Uh, so, good question. Gringa's not good a question. thing. That sounds like. Oh, yeah. Oh, gringa yeah. sounds like the Grinch's girlfriend. <laughs> or, gringita. I'm like, you know, alta gringita, tall white girl. Uh, but yeah. Moving of on. Course, I'm forgetting <laughs> you're actually speaking from Barcelona, so you actually know a lot more about the. Well, they don't call us gringos or gringos here. It's giddy is the the foreigner, but in oh, yeah really? central well in Latin America, I'm a gringa. Wow, we have gotten off track, but this is fun. And okay. we're not off track. This is a good segue, I think, into microtyco because okay. we're just talking about um, the type of uh, what this does for young people, who it's for, and and. Also some discomfort there, because I know you've had to really pivot in the way you offer it because of lockdown and COVID. And how 
How has it been shaped by the recent discomfort? That's a brilliant question. And it's fascinating because if you were to tell me at the start of the lockdown, the microtag would go, to be, go on to be bigger and more refined and more enhanced than it's ever been as a result of it, I would have been somewhat shocked. Um, and I think it would be an understatement to say that the lockdown and the resulting echoes of that um, have been uncomfortable <laughs> for a lot of people of varying degrees. And isn't it interesting? People say we're all in this together. You're like, really? You're in a townhouse in Edinburgh with a garden, right? That person in the little box in London with her kids going crazy in the front room trying to work from her bedroom with the mm. abusive partner, is she really, are we all in this together? Do you know mm. what I mean? I really, I think the, if we want to talk about discomfort in the future, I shudder to think what the echoes of this period will be. Mm. What the perception of inequality, the perception of people's life's expe life experiences. There was actually this brilliant professor in Oxford, Professor Gupta, that said that lockdown was a middle-class luxury. Oh, ouch. Oh, That's... totally. You're like, oh, I'll just, I'll just go into teams and work from home, go, well, the woman packing the shelves and the guy driving the bus. Yeah. And, you know, no, nah, they, they don't have that luxury. And it re I really, really felt that. Um but that's not what you were asking. No, but that is a that's a stinger of a statement because it feels quite true. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, luxury. Mm. So we have um, World House runs the largest bank in Malawi for um, rural poor women, right? And we're also in Zimbabwe and Zimbabwe. And when you're talking about lockdowns in Zimbabwe, one of our clients, this woman, she's you know an amazing entrepreneur, and we funded her business and trained her. And she just said lockdown. She goes, "We'll starve first. Uh, yeah, we we get to have groceries <clears throat> delivered. We actually can just go to the shop once a week. But yeah, when you don't have food, it's a whole different matter. Wow. Yeah, I, was speak, I was speaking to some of our clients in Africa, and they were going through the symptoms and um, mortality. Of COVID, they meant, mm, yeah, we'll swap you one of our diseases for that. That one sounds great. I think we'll come out fine on that one. Yeah. <laughs> really? Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah. Would you like uh, tuberculosis? There you go. You can have that. Swap you. Um, yeah. Childhood malaria, it kills children or it kills children, mm. basically. Yeah. Yeah. So you were talking about um, the idea of. Okay, so here's the point. The reason, one of the many reasons I created Microtech was because I knew that. Um, entrepreneurship was not an identity that one person has it's mm. a process of thinking and we all have it it's an it's intrinsic to the human species we are problem solvers it's just what we do right and we're great at working together to do that and so i wanted to just utterly blow apart the myth that entrepreneurship was a thing that you wear like born with good looks right mm. some are some not mm -hmm. oh it's the same for entrepreneurs no it's not it's a skill you can practice like a musical instrument you might have a natural aptitude but wherever you are you can start and get better at it or physical exercise or sport yeah there'll be some people who are just born you know with some intrinsic gifts but everybody can practice and everybody can get better at it and the second thing is it's always a team sport Mm. it's only the tiresome narcissist on the tv that says yeah i did all this all myself and it's just me and i was born this way they are the most unself-aware people you could ever yeah you know, in terms of really not knowing the dynamics that shaped their success yes they put hard work in but lots of people work hard right oh, so yeah. this idea you know what i mean well the um, uncomfortable myth of the self-made man people who <laughs> think that that's possible oh no it wasn't about your education or the stability of the system you were born into or anything. Nope, nothing to yeah. do with that. What yeah. really, really struck me was our micro-clients in Malawi. Um, mm. And you look at them and go, do you know, if she was back home, she'd run circles around everybody I know. Yet yeah. she is, she is, I mean, to have running water, to then be the person with the running water, to then expand into bringing electricity to the village, to then be the person who, like, she had to start from a standing star. Mm. Um, and... She has that spirit, so it's all like the little bonsai trees. They had, do you know what I mean? Like they're yeah. growing, but they're growing as high as they can grow in that environment. Yeah. Um. And so that again, that's kind of discomfort and back to humility. That so I wanted to demonstrate clearly that we all had that entrepreneurial skill and it was a team spirit. But there's one thing that differentiates those who do and those who don't, and it's having simply stated having a reason to do it, having mm -hmm. what we call your why. Number one in the Mike Tycho method, there's eleven stages. Number one is why are you doing this? 
right? So that's why the mountain story is relevant to me, because I would say I have the mother of all wise, right? Like, I know why I'm doing this. And we see so many talented people, and I love your your podcast is so aptly named because so many things touch upon it. So many brilliantly talented people who never discover their gift of what they had to give because when the discomfort comes, they stop. Yeah, or they avoid discomfort and you never push through into this superpower that is this expanded comfort zone and this understanding that you can do anything one breath at a time. Exactly so. And so if you have a big enough why, it makes you go past the discussion. So I like to give simplistic little analogies. You know, can you imagine there's a car on fire, right? Well, how much effort would you exert to rip the door open? Well, don't be ridiculous and burn my hand. I go, yeah, what if your kids were inside it? Mm. There's your why that overcomes any short-term discomfort. Nothing that you could endure to get into that car, get your kids out, would be worse than the consequences of not getting them out, right? Mm. Now, that's a simplistic yeah. why, right? Yeah. Or an example. So I want to demonstrate that. So what I did was I said, right, I'm going to give, I, I said I'd pilot it with 10-year-old kids. And I said, right, if I can give these kids a real sense of purpose and what business means to them, because one thing that really concerns me, Bert, is that as I grew up, my mother was my role model in business. She had a business. I got to do so many things I couldn't have done before because my mom set up a business when I was three, right? Mm. So that was my role model. All I had was positive role models of what business meant. And then I was talking to some of our Wild Hearts Global Youth Ambassadors, these incredibly talented young kids. And I asked them if any of them wanted to go into business. And they looked at me and said, no, why is that? Well, why would we want to be a part of the thing that's caused all the problems we're going to have to solve? Oh, wow. You go, well, that's only that one myopic sense that you're getting from the media that this is what business is like there's all this incredible stuff happening no one's telling them about it all they see is corruption debt banking crashes environmental degradation and they Mm -hmm. only associate that with businesses right yeah yeah economic growth but what if you could use entrepreneurial skills to use business as a force for good to address the things that are most important to you would that inspire people in a different way so that was the idea of microcycle so what i got these little 10-year-old kids in East Coast, right, outside Glasgow. And it was lovely because that's where I'm from, as you know. And I said, right, kids, I'm going to give you a one-pound seed capital and you've got 30 days to grow this, grow it as much as you can. There's only one rule. It has to be legal, everything you do. But 100% of that money, I'm going to use it. The World Hearts Foundation will use it. So all of the money, none will be taken out. And we're going to actually set women up in business so they can work their way out of poverty and send their own kids to school mm-hmm. and you can get to read their stories. So you're going to become entrepreneurs to fund entrepreneurs. Mm. And that's Investors. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, listen, yeah. they got badges saying global ethical investor on it. Oh, wow. That just gave me chills. I love that. I love that. So here's the point. I thought, if those kids can grow a pound into £100, I'd prove my point. So I would ask your listeners, how much could five normal 10-year-old mm. kids grow a pound into? Now it's a dollar, a rupee, a euro, you name it. Because mm-hmm. it went all around the world. It's 14,000 pounds. Wow. In 30 days. So it's 14 grand, nine grand, four grand, six. It was just consistent. And the government asked to meet me and they said, what are you doing with these kids? Like we're trying to teach all this enterprise stuff and none of them are producing results of this. I said, Mm -hmm. yeah, because you're trying to teach them how. You should start with why. Mm-hmm. And let them figure out the how, which is the yeah. beauty of being an entrepreneur, right? And that's where Microtycle was born, because then I developed the Microtycle method of demystifying the thought process, thought processes of entrepreneurial thinking. Mm-hmm. And I view, I compare it to music, Dori Mi Fa Sol Tito. All the manifestations of music come from the same source, right? So if you learn this way of thinking, you can apply it to anything. And then we moved, teams still run the, run the concept of Microtycle Generate with a pound, but now we have Microtycle Innovate as well where you say, right, you're going to use the exact same methodology of thinking to create money, um, or as we say, create wealth in the wider sense. Mm-hmm. It's about, now you can use it for to address the decline in the bee population or to, to stimulate greater um, equality and employment practices in your company, or, yeah. and they start applying it. It's now used by some of the biggest companies in the world to train their teams globally, from yeah. their graduates to their senior leaders, and the results they produce are utterly incredible. Ah, here's the, but here's the point it has to be experiential 
Because if people don't experience the discomfort and the euphoria of, oh my God, I've just come up with this great idea, but I feel a bit sick in my stomach because now I have to pitch it to people, or I need to go and ex- approach a supplier to see if they'll supply me at the right price, I feel a bit funny. Go, yeah, that's called discomfort. And if you went and got a degree in business because you wrote a paper on it, that's like having a, a PhD and asking girls out and you've never been on a date. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Do you, know I, do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. people going, oh yeah, I've got a PhD. And I'm like, oh, well, you must be a multimillionaire. They go, oh, no, no. <laughs> I've just written lots of books. Yeah, well, an entrepreneur who hangs out with a lot of other entrepreneurs, there's always something that each of us is good at. But in order to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to wade into the discomfort of the stuff you're also not good at in and order to make it work. Point. It's experiential. Yeah. So you get, I'm not the most talented person in the office. I mean, I look around the office and a lot of the young women in particular have all got first class business degrees there's a lot of really 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 clever people in the office so the idea of the entrepreneur who gets the credit sometimes it's they were just the gutsiest one or the one who went you know something i'm going to make that call now if they get excessive credit for that that's not fair because it's the team around them that makes the whole thing function Mm -hmm. but this idea of them being the most talented is actually um, a complete myth so therefore if you've got really talented people who've got this in them why are they not taking that step discomfort stops them discomfort can but but when you provide the knowledge so if you're using i use the analogy of the microcycle method as like an online fitness program right you go, you're going to go through this program it's going to show you how to produce these results i get so much evidence of producing these results but you're going to have to go for it and it will feel uncomfortable but mm. you will come out the other side with such an expanded sense of who you are and what you can do it will be such a gift to experience and you'll have it for the rest of your life and the analogy i give go okay this is a microcycle method if you don't do it it will produce no results so if you get an online fitness program and the guy's jumping about telling you everything you're sitting with your cheeseburger <laughs> away, and you're like going oh those exercises look hard yeah well, <laughs> there's not going to be much of a body transformation at the end of your 90-day program is there yeah yeah it's yeah. about doing you have, you have to do it and it's uncomfortable but that's the point yeah, let's get uncomfortable. It is such a superpower too, isn't it? And we have, we, we've been wired to avoid it usually. It's just, yeah, evolutionary biology. We avoid discomfort because they're in, you know, there be dragons basically. But because it is the edge of a superpower, isn't it? But Betsy, it's getting worse now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at, ah, sorry, coming to the, the idea of microtactic expanding during the lockdown, I want to touch yeah. on... Um, the alarming rise in mental health in young people and this idea of discomfort, etc. right? We'll touch on mm. that. Um, if, so, okay, so there's a microcycle method, right? So it'd be a bit ironic if we were then challenged, <laughs> if I was challenged with an external reality and we weren't very entrepreneurial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I like joke. that you can laugh about that. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. but it's, it is like saying like, you know, I'm very wary of going, if someone's going to teach you something, make sure they do it. You don't want to go and work train with an obese fitness instructor <laughs> do you know what I mean <laughs> yeah, I so you're entrepreneurial do. huh well here's COVID yeah and listen I actually had one of my young, young directors she was growing she came back from a gym induction and she sat down and what was wrong she the guy was morbidly obese <laughs> <laughs> oh no oh. and you feel yeah, like saying so you're like you're approaching these exercises from a theoretical point of view, I imagine. <laughs> anyway, you can edit that. But, uh, so uh, oh, thanks, Mike. <laughs> oh, so, oh, don't tell me how to edit my podcast. No, it's um, raw and I, I, it's going to be raw and real. We don't edit. That's oh, part really? of the discomfort practice. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. It's so, all going up there. <laughs> the, um, so at the start of the lockdown, look at Mike Tycho, we do live training at the start of the year. I was in Johannesburg and I was in New Jersey training Barclays people and all this stuff. And then the lockdown came and what it actually enabled me to do, this enforced right stop. Yes, we were still working. There wasn't as many meetings because I think everybody was reeling a bit, you know. So I then I took a step back and thought, I'm going to really do a deep dive into all the stuff that I've learned and want to express about wider business lessons and entrepreneurial lessons. And I'm going to document it all. And ended up writing a book on it. And so the, the whole methodology expanded to such a degree that then podcasts go, well, I'm going to now record these podcasts. So these leaders, from they're walking their kids to school, these graduates from their commuting to whatever, can just listen and just absorb it rather than just a couple of face, face you know, interactions and training. 
So that was a huge deal. And then we started doing the training remotely. So we're training like teams from LA all the way to Singapore and they're all beaming it in. It's utterly incredible. So in terms of the new behaviors that the lockdown engendered and the time to reflect, it gave me the time to take the microtackle method and the people were reaching to a totally different level. And it's really, it's been utterly transformatory actually. Mm. And it's given you a greater reach that you never actually thought you'd have, it sounds like. Exactly so. So the thing about mental health, if I can touch on that, right? Um, I've been very passionate about, we touched on that the difference between somebody who, I mean, launching a business or being entrepreneurial can be a metaphor for so many different things. Mm. It's very, very rarely technical knowledge that makes a person take the leap. It's an mm. emotional characteristic. So with the microtycle, we say it inspires the responsible business leaders of the future, the leaders that the world deserves. So you go, if you, if you were to list the traits of leaders that we admire, it's never good with spreadsheets. <laughs> it's very always true. vision, courage, compassion, tenacity, mm. empathy. It's always emotional characteristics. Yet the business school I went to, no one even mentioned that. So you talk about producing a business leader, well, we're going to talk about the really important, most important elements of being a leader are emotional, right? Yeah. And the ability to go, this scares me, I'm still going to do it, right? Now, that is not something you can learn from a book. You yeah. can supplement your knowledge, but it's like trying to swim from a book. You can't do it. Yeah, it makes it doubly scary, though, because you can't just follow the manual. You actually have to have discomfort and emotional maturity and intelligence, right? So therefore, I think that coming from the positive psychology element of, okay, all those emotional traits that are all positive psychological traits, I always wanted to build them into the microtechnical method. Okay. Mm. Um, but I thought, right, how am I going to do this? And so I started writing this book called, which I won't tell you the title, but I started writing this book. On it. And then I became, as we, so many of us as are becoming profoundly alarmed by the repeated instances of mental health and mm. emotional uh, discomfort in young people in my own circle. Mm. And we were introduced to this amazing woman called Alicia Drummond, who is a lead, one of the leading um, mental health experts for teens mm. in the UK. And she has a business called Teen Tents, and she's fantastic. And this was the revelation about the lockdown, because I thought, how can we help as many kids as possible? How can we help as many parents as possible to understand what's going on with their kids? And it was the lockdown that had it educated to such a degree that you can learn from webinars and Zoom calls, which yeah. in the past would go, oh, are you not going to come and do a talk in my town or whatever? It's like, or can I not, whatever, like there'd be more, can we, are you going to come to our school? But it was like, no, we're going to do a webinar. Mm-hmm. And so we've built into the microtycle schools program. So kids do microtycle, kids, there's other elements that we um, provide, but a key element is monthly webinars on mental health. Mm-hmm. And sadly, they are massively oversubscribed. Then wow. we announced, okay, this is the first webinar on um, men, how to deal with stress and anxiety for young people, both for parents to identify their kids and for young people themselves. Wow. And within a couple yeah. of days, it was completely oversubscribed. Huh. Now, there's something really interesting about that, about looking at mental health, and a lot of it lands at the door of tech and Mm-hmm. smartphones and mm-hmm. social media there's Jonathan Hyde does some really interesting stuff on that where he talks about there's a confluence of there's three things that he says why there's been an explosion in mental health issues and the first one I'm, go, I'm going to go come to the first one last right mm-hmm. the second one was Facebook reducing its um, age that you could access Facebook from being a, a student uh, yeah. 13 and so if you're a little girl and you're 11 year old you can lie and get access to Facebook around that same time a year or so this iPhone was the fastest growing product mm-hmm. in consumer history so for the first time this little girl can get access to the internet and Facebook without her mum being able to look over her shoulder and it has been catastrophic yeah. There's been a 1,200% increase in preteen suicides in the States. Wow. My goddaughter is 12 years old and this stuff scares me to death. So I have two sons, right? So mm. they, 
my sons when they go on to their iPads or whatever, they tend to game, right? So they'll do mm-hmm. Minecraft, which is actually very creative. They don't really do so many shooting games, but the point being is boys, boys' aggression is physical. Boys will beat each mm-hmm. other up and then they'll go over it as long as the Hopefully your kid doesn't get beat up too much, but boys are a bit rough with each other, right? But they get over it. They manifest their aggression through violence, right? Girls, according to psychologists, manifest it through this terrifying phrase called reputation savaging. Hmm. You take that wee girl and you take all that nonsense she would have went through, like my sister's at school with, she said this and she's, and girls gang up, another really horrible stuff that goes on in school. And you take a smartphone and social media and you amplify that exponentially. And what are those kids? I mean, who can stand up to that? Yeah. Do you know what I, I mean? Do you know what I mean? So I think the irony is, but taking one step back, what was the first thing that's maybe kids even more susceptible to this is in the States and even now in the UK, the absolute decline, I know it's frowned upon, of unsupervised play. Mm. Parents yeah. became so uncomfortable with the idea of their kids going out and playing alone and just getting on with things. So Climbing trees, playing the street. Yeah. Wrapped, in, wrapped in bubble wrap. Yeah. Not sorting things out themselves, not experiencing a sense of risk or if I climb this, I might fall out or, or, or this guy's just said this to me and this kid's bigger than me, so I need to go and get all my wee pals together. All that stuff you used to do when you were running about and playing in the streets that I used to do when I was a kid. And so kids have become so uncomfortable with the mm. idea of emotional discomfort mm. that the response to it is not as robust. And then you take that and put it into social media, boom, you, yeah. get so, you get an epidemic of mental health problems. Wow, that's such an interesting link. It's just the, the, the bread, we're not bred to have emotional resilience in the same way because we are so sheltered and disconnected. Yeah, that's, whew, that is a really good point. And I hadn't actually heard that research. That's alarming, to say the least. Look at how the adults are behaving then. Someone disagrees with you politically. So there's a, a group of guys that I take my sons to football or soccer with, right? And, like, and they're just such a brilliant group of guys and they're all completely different. One's a senior officer in the military, so I think he's mm. quite conservative. There's another guy that you think he's further left than Karl Marx, right? And he won't talk <laughs> about it, right? And then there's a guy that's really passionate about Scottish independence and there's a guy that... Yeah. And we would... We're really, really good friends. Mm. And we've all got totally different views. Mm. But that's only one part of our identities. Because there's all these other bits we've got much more in common with, right? Yeah. The point being is that's becoming increasingly rare. If you see people, I'm not on things like Facebook, but someone during the Brexit referendum or in our states with whether it's Republicans or uh, Democrats going, mm. disowning each other. Yeah. There's no tolerance. I can't be be friends with you anymore. Go, but we had so much. Why? Because you're so uncomfortable with the idea that I don't share your view on a couple Mm. of issues. Like, that's it. Game over. I think this is a really good, we're going to have to wrap up soon, but I think this is a good final question, which is basically like in a line. What do you feel is the value of people considering the, the value of discomfort? Why does the world need discomfort right now? I know. On a personal level, for personal goals, discomfort teaches you very often what you need to know. Mm. Things that you need to learn or things that you need to address in your life because it's your body's alarm system, right? Secondly, though, it also teaches you sometimes how low your threshold is. Mm. Like, if you really, if you look at someone you admire, what I'd love to do what she's done or what he's done or whatever, you go, well, I'm going to have to raise my discomfort level because they have got a tolerance of discomfort and stress that would crush me just now. But you can become like that. Mm. So if you say, I'd love to achieve X or not talk about achievement all the time, but I'd like to deliver this in my life. You go, well, you're going to have to do things that are just uncomfortable. That doesn't mean say, you're not capable of it. It just means you're going to have to expand your threshold. Mm. And going through progressive, constructive discomfort is the gift that helps you do that. The perfect analogy is physical exercise. Push yourself enough to grow, not enough to hurt yourself. Keep doing it. You will be tran- you'll be amazed at what, how your sense of physical fitness transformed. The same happens with your emotions. Yep. And so, maybe if we can learn more tolerance and stuff, we won't be down each other's throats all the time because yeah. we have way more in common 
than we have that separates us. And that's yeah. ancient wisdom. They've known that since, you know, I mean, like these, even in the trenches, the guys came out and played football at Christmas Day because they're like, you know, something. I love my kids and I miss my family and I like football too. <laughs> They've got shooting at each other. We've got way more in common. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. It's just the expansiveness of discomfort. The fact that it makes you less brittle. You can roll with things. You can understand things better. But yeah. Oh, Meg, thank you so much. And uh, we, we will definitely speaking again because that was a fascinating podcast. And I have a feeling if I warm up your team first, you'll get to tell me some of those stories they wouldn't let you tell me. So uh, here's no, to... I'm too, I'm too uncomfortable. You're forbidden. You're forbidden. But here is to future conversations. Thank you so very much for your time. It's been a delight. It's an absolute pleasure. Look forward to seeing Barcelona. Yeah, come on over anytime. Thank you so much, Meg. Bye. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts and head over to the Discomfort Practice Patreon page. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change, the edge of our superpowers, and the edge of changing the world for the better. Thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable.